But what SAP know about macro is when you buy at macro, you swap your macro card. So they now know where you're buying, they know what you're buying, they know the volume you're buying, they know the frequency that you're buying it at. So they know who Trader Joe is, who's buying a pallet of milk at a time. You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by Nicework, a branding and service design company. One of the things we do best is asking our clients the right questions. This podcast came about because we wanted to share some of the best answers that we've heard over the last 12 years. We talked to significant creators, experts, and communicators who we've encountered, and we share the useful insights, inspirations, and facts that made us stop and take notes as we go about our work. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. In this episode of One More Question, we chat to Brent Spilly, or Spilly, as we affectionately call him. Well, you've got to spell that with three L's. Spilly spent the last 20 years discovering what makes him happy. He's driven an ambulance, pickled and sold a jar of Acho or two, and he now grows creative individuals through his consultancy, Growing Pains. He's been a coach and a friend of mine for many years, and I really enjoy his passion for building others. We chat about the future of agencies, how to work with or be good clients, and Brav, his latest endeavor. You know, every good podcast needs a motorcycle. Enjoy. This intro was recorded in Zurich, next to the limits, so unfortunately, I was unable to turn down the river or the bird sounds. So, so Spilly, I mean, thank you for coming on the show. Um, and one of the things you were sort of talking about, you know, trends are very, very popular right now. So maybe you can blow the audience away by, by sharing your trends that you can tell us. Uh, I know you're talking a bit from small agencies and large agencies. What do you think the trends are that are shaping the the kind of creative services landscape at the moment? Well, firstly, I think trends have always been popular. They've just been different trends, right? Yeah. Um, but I suppose that there's a lot more research and availability of information. So people are sharing trends more openly where it used to be a guarded secret. Um, I mean, I spend my life in media, advertising, comms and tech businesses. I have um, one-man shows, fundamentally freelancers, right through to some of the large global multinationals, you know, the three, four hundred men in a room kind of agencies. Um, and I have agencies from sort of the PR right through to the, the heavy tech and software. So sort of touching all the major verticals of communication businesses. And um, my advantage is probably not coming from one of those businesses is that I have a pure business perspective of it. And because I am touching so many of these businesses, I have uh, an understanding both locally and internationally of what sort of the major trends and potentially threats are to some of these businesses. So I don't believe that there is, you know, we talked about digital agencies. That doesn't really exist anymore. There's no such thing as a campaign without digital component. And it's now getting to the point where the campaign is digital with a traditional piece bolted on. Yes. So it's, it's definitely turned tables. And um, I mean, when I started, it was multimedia. Then that became new media and then it became digital. So it's all basically, there's always a fancy term to describe anything kind of new well, coming I don't into think that, the, the I don't industry. think it's a thing anymore. I just think you're just an agency now. And if you don't offer digital, it's the same way you would have to offer TV, print or, or radio. It's just another channel basically or multiple channels. But I don't think that there is firstly any more definition. Um, we talk, people talk about, you know, we're a fully integrated agency. I'm going, you're an agency. It's like stop calling yourself fancy titles. So I think the, the big thing here is that We've now got through that, you're digital, you're traditional, you're this, that fight is now no longer a fight anymore. It's, you're, you have to be everything or you don't exist. Um, 
or you have to be extremely niche and incredibly good at one thing and then probably niche twice in terms of one thing for a very particular size market or kind of client. So I've seen a lot of locally, a lot of um, agencies go into one thing like a Google AdWords or display specialist for SME, sort of, you know, the under the half a million dollar kind of revenue client, mom and pops, uh, butcher, you know, the candlestick maker, good old fashioned brick and mortar kind of business where they just want leads. Mm. So the guys have become fully automated at the bottom and they can pick up multiple, like multiple clients where traditionally you look at big agencies, they've probably got four or five substantial and then five or 10 smaller clients. I'm talking about small agencies picking up two, three, 400 clients where um, their CRM is incredibly automated. They have very low touch with clients and they just pump out leads for these businesses. So I see that's becoming more and more transparent that super niche for a market or good old fashioned, we can do everything for the you know blue bank, red bank, whatever the bank you are. So I think there's definitely a split in terms of size of business now and, and, and a very particular skill set. Um, but the, the the fight in terms of the two different kinds of businesses no longer exist. So that's the one piece I think has become blatantly obvious that you're either super niche or you're everything again. Um, there isn't anything that I'm seeing, um, if I go back six, seven, eight years ago, everyone was buying digital and social media businesses. There's very little trend now. I mean, everyone's talking about content. Content has come and gone as far as a wave goes. Um, the one thing that everyone is talking about is sort of the data analytics piece, um, which is coming off the back of you know online SEO and, uh, and sort of very much business intelligence piece. And if I look at some of the larger agencies, what has become transparent is that the client is going, yeah, yeah, pretty pictures, whatever, show me the value, show me where we converted, show me the numbers, show me that there's been return. And that conversation is driving um, a core of data analytics at the center of these agencies. So if you had to sort of think of an agency in concentric circles, center is data analytics, business intelligence. Outside of that would be everything that's digital and that's from web dev through to social. And then the, the outside ring would be, you know, billboard, TV and print. But at the very center, in terms of the decision-making process, is that what could be sort of deemed consultancy is understanding the numbers and understanding the analytics behind those numbers so it can be advisory. And that advisory then dictates what kind of creative, what kind of channels we're going into. And, and that's always existed, but now it's way more tangible. Like we can understand the numbers. Do you think, I mean, so, so one of my, my kind of bugbears at the moment is you know, to a large degree, that kind of drive towards data analytics and combine that with a bit of the trend in digital, a lot of this kind of communication and brand communication has become exceedingly transactional. Mm. Um, and you can see it's a really good space to see this is kind of like beer, where beer seems to be sold on whoever bought the fridge at the end of the aisle or whoever ran the last sexiest campaign. So you walk in and one day you're a Corona man, the next time you walk in you're a Vintook man, the next time you walk in you're a, a Castle Light man and it's become this like kind of acquisition, almost arms race, you know, between all these different brands. Whereas a few years ago, it was like, I'm a Castle man. Mm. And if you if, you, if I come to your house and there isn't Castle, I'm not drinking beer. Like I'll, I'll opt out. So you know? I think what's, what's happened is that um, and, and you can almost frame this back to kind of the music industry is that at one point you'd go and buy the album and you'd be proud of holding the album and you'd be, you know, like I grew up probably a couple of years ahead of you, but you were like a raging U2 fan and you had every single album. 
And over time, the albums became less and less attractive. Everything went digital. You now buy the parts you like. You're exposed to way more. Um, but the attending the U2 concert, the experience is where, firstly, they make money. And secondly, you get to touch the, the brand. Um, so at the moment, there is so much noise with all the brands online that you actually dilute it in terms of becoming loyal to anything. But it's now I'm seeing more and more of these sort of activations and partnerships in terms of large concerts and large, not to my music, I'm talking about, you know, it could be football around soccer, uh, soccer around uh, beer, um, any, any of these like very large, right down to very small niche sort of events and activations is where digital is pushing people to, to interact with their brand because they're not seeing it or feeling it anywhere else. So I think that's definitely one of the, the trends in terms of figuring out how to use the micro-influencer to push people to a, a real, you know, in-the-flesh touch point. Um, so, you, so you're saying that everybody needs to organize their own fire festival? Um, yeah, probably not. Although, <laughs> although, although I think someone made some money somewhere there, right? Um, and, and I see they're doing the next one. But um, I, I think that what is, what is also interesting is that, the, if we be blatantly honest, is that you may be sitting from a brand perspective and understand the value of building brand. Mm. And I'm not knocking that at all. I think there's a real thing there. But a lot of the companies now, especially if they're FMCG, okay, show me the money. Yeah. Where's the return? Because for years and years and years, we were throwing money at all this big branding and all this sort of brand awareness. And it was completely immeasurable. We just knew we were selling product. I want to know that if I spend a rand, I'm getting two rand back. Show me that. Um, and they're becoming more, that's becoming more and more transparent in the conversation. So the, the creative will always be there, but where we put it and how we target it and how we personalize it um, is data analytics. So I, I do think what's going to happen now is that we're going to get served better and better quality ads into our feeds, which are more direct to the way we operate online and, and they're learning way too much about us. Um, but I'm quite comfortable with that because I'd rather be served that than stuff that I'm not interested in. Um, and I think that's how they're going to start building loyalty is that if they can figure out who I am and use the information correctly. I mean, just, you know, I don't own a car, but I get served. You need a, you need car insurance. You need a car service. You need, I'm going to like, you don't get me at all. Mm. Where if I, was I hung served, up on an insurance phone call today because A, who phones anyone anymore? And yeah. B, like, why are you trying to sell me budget insurance? Absolutely. So they don't understand the consumer. Um, and in actual fact, it's, it's got to a point where that spam puts you off brand. So I think that the, at the center of this is because there's so much available, that data analytics piece, I think, is massive. It's understanding, genuinely understanding who you're speaking to and sending the right stuff at the right time, super valuable. And do you think we're balancing that up? And, because that's super like kind of quantitative. Like, do you think there's any like enough qualitative thought that goes into this sort of stuff? Because I, I suppose the the personality that I have online and the human being that I am are not necessarily kind same. of the same. But they're not just tracking who you are online, they're tracking your actual behavior. So, I mean, a couple of months ago, I deleted my Facebook account off my phone because when I realized how much information they were, just from my location services, tracking where I was and how long I'm spending at places, that is actually who I am. So they can see that I'm spending time at Baby City, right? They know I'm a baby city client or a pedophile, one of the two, right? <laughs> um, but the reality is, is that is that I don't talk about that online. I don't go, hey, I'm looking for nappies at a good price. That's me talking online. But my behavior is I'm actually spending time in that store. Um, and then the problem with broken there is that baby city don't know I'm spending time in their store. So they're not giving me the right information. They're not serving me ads. So Facebook know and Google know and everyone else knows. Baby city don't know. 
So, I mean, the, the, the brands themselves need to actually wake up to the fact that they have clients in their physical space and not do anything with I it. I don't think Baby City's biggest problem is a no. data problem. I think, <laughs> no. I think there's a Where's staff the training experience yeah. kind of make it a, sure. a not sure. um, terrible place to go. And that's part of marketing, right? I mean, there's, there's a massive piece in terms of we talk about, you know, all the touch points and those moments of magic at, at every single exposure point. So, you know, the best ad online targeted perfectly to me and I walk into a store and no one helps me, yeah. is absolutely true. Um, I mean, I can talk about experiences. I'm looking for a new bike. I found the bike I want. I found it on social media. So they were advertising that bike. I sent them a DM going, hey, is this bike still available? No reply. Yeah. I walked into the store and all five guys, or our sales guys were playing hacky sack outside. And I walked around going, can someone help me please? And I wasn't there to browse. I was there because I wanted to buy a vehicle. Um, and probably not going to buy it now. So because if that's the kind of service I'm going to get after the fact, no, thank you. It's probably going to get even worse. Yeah, I mean, so we call this like moments of brand truth. So, yeah. so we do a lot of this work where we kind of map out mm. how how brands are performing because I think, you know, communication is becoming like I think people are realizing that communication doesn't. It's not just advertising. It's not just kind of the push push message. It's like, what does the person say when you walk into the shop? What does the shop look like? And consistency across those messages. Yeah, because you had a great digital experience yep. and then you have a, a terrible physical experience. Yep. Like, and, and what's that thing that, um, you know, disappointment is the, the difference between your expectations and your reality. Yep. So a lot of the time you being served this wonderful content and then you go and actually try and engage and there's a huge gap between mm. those two oh, sort I of things. I completely agree. So, and I do think that, you know, there's a lot of conversation where it's probably spun off a little bit from, from website builds, but, you know, that, that the UI, UX, CX, the client experience piece, yeah. that consulting piece is becoming more and more transparent as well. So a lot of the guys are, are being put under pressure to figure out what is that, like what happens after we serve you the ad? When, when I do call you and your call center answers in wherever the hell your call center is, am I getting quality service? Um, I mean, another really good example is a, a, a stupid thing. But today, I actually phoned to have my my alarm fixed in my house. It will be fixed by the time this podcast the podcast comes out, right? Um, and I, I had an amazing, amazing experience with with ADT on the phone. And I was like, wow, they sorted me out. They booked it. They told me, blah blah blah. Everything was like brilliant. And then I got the, please don't hang up. Please answer my survey. And I'm like, I'm irritated now because you gave me great experience. If you said, are you happy? Yes, thank you. Put the phone down. But now I don't have to, obviously. But I've got this push one, push one, push five, push. I'm like, now you're wasting my time. So the fact that the actual, are you getting good service is actually ruining my service. No one's realizing that. Yeah, but I suppose it's also um, an example of the time that we live in that that you are you were happy that you got good service, mm. but then irritated that they still, like yep. the convenience of the good service only lasted, yep. you know, seconds. the glow was only seconds in your head and then mm. you already moved into a space of kind of yep. irritation. So I do think, you know, just before we started this, we talked about how you package your products and package your service. Um, and I do think that that has become more and more important that I'm not talking about physical art of packaging, obviously that's important, but the entire experience and um, I, I think what, what is interesting to me is that sometimes those things are not within your control. So if you are a FMCG product manufacturer, you're placing your stuff in someone else's hand. You're putting your stuff inside a pick and pay. And you're hoping that they don't ruin the experience yeah. while buying your product. Well, you're also putting it on the back of a truck 
that you don't control how that driver is driving. You are merchandising it in places that sure. you've probably never been to. So uh, it, it does become quite difficult for, for larger businesses to control every single touch point. Um, but I, I do think that that has become super, you know, super apparent to me that there is a definite disparity between what we see online and what we're seeing in the real world, if, if you are real world. And um, it's, it's often, even if it's just an e-commerce store, what happens after your purchase? Um, I think that, that in terms of the digital space, there's still huge gaps where if you're shopping online, I mean, a real, a real experience, I shop online, I buy a pair, pair of shoes, I get served all those ads to buy the pair of shoes, I decide to buy the shoes, they deliver them to me, and then I keep getting served that pair of shoes. I'm going, guys, you haven't closed the loop. Yeah. Like, I've spent the money. You should be going, they're also available in different color, or these jeans would look good with those shoes. Yes. But they're serving me that. I'm like, they've now ruined the fact that I'm irritated with them because I've spent money, and now they're trying to sell me the same thing again. Small example, but it's they haven't quite figured out all the touch points yet in terms of how to loop them closed and then sell me the next thing. And that's, in most businesses, probably quite true. I mean, I had an experience recently with um, Mr. Price, which I think is quite a strong brand, you know, from a perception, you know, like they're quite clear about where they're pitching in the market and mm-hmm. what they're offering. And I think that's quite good. So I went online and I bought a bunch of shirts. We were doing a race and we wanted a bunch of kind of matching shirts so we could get them printed. I do the transaction, it was super smooth. The website worked beautifully. Everything was great. Then half the stock arrived. So not the full order, only half the stock. And I asked the delivery guy and he's like, I have no idea. Like, I'm, I don't work for Mr. Price, so I have no idea what, what's going on here. So then I had to now phone in. I couldn't go and check online. I had to phone in, which was already a break where I indicated that I want to be online, but now I'm forced into the call center. And it turns out that they didn't have the stock. So instead of like contacting me and saying, we don't have the stock, do you still want us to ship you part of it? They just mm. shipped it anyway. But then they're like, you can, you can return it, but you have to go to the store. So now it's the second time where I'm like, I've actually shown that I want to do it digitally, but now I'm being forced to kind of interact yeah. in the physical space. And when I got to the shop, the number on the digital slip didn't work in the POS in the store. So it was only that a manager intervened that I was able to actually kind of, you know, yeah. sort that out. But it is interesting that, that you know, the, I suppose it's also that thing that these agencies are like fragmented accounts. So what the digital guys are doing and not necessarily aligning with what the, the in-store guys are doing, which is not aligning with what the call center is doing. And I don't think there's anyone watching the Mr. Price brand on a kind of bird's eye view yeah. thing and going, what are all those brand truth moments so, uh, that we can kind of carry you've, across you've everything? You've actually segued conveniently into like an amazing sort of case study that I've recently come across. So we talk about threats to agencies and I'm fascinated by the fact that a lot of the guys are aware of this, the agency owners and the bosses right through, you know, global are aware of this, yet they seem to be very slow at moving. And obviously that's just typical large business. Um, but the one that, that really fascinates me is, is enterprise and resource planning products. So SAP, Cisco, you know, the IBMs of the world. Um, and there's, there's been an amazing sort of case study, which has been, and I'll give you some reference here. So SAP run, Pick and pay, ShopRite, you know, MassMart, all the large retail and wholesales in this business. When we say run, they they track their warehousing distribution, point of sale, their accounting, everything. Those businesses are not being kicked out of pick and pay, ShopRite, and, and, and because they they entrenched in that business, they the backbone of that business. SAP know more about ShopRite checkers and macros business than macro do. Okay. And globally, SAP have been buying digital agencies left, right, and center. 
And it doesn't kind of make sense because they're not a marketing business. But some of the case studies which they're currently running, and I'll give you an example, is that traditionally in a macro store, when the long-life milk starts to run out in terms of, of expiry date, um, the macro store would phone the clover buyer or the clover agent and say, your stuff's expiring tomorrow, come pick it up. And they get 100% refund, right? So macro just get all their money back. And clover take the stuff and dump it. it cost them huge amounts of money to ship it in, keep it, ship it back, lots of money. So what, but what SAP know about macro is when you buy at macro, you swap your macro card. So they now know where you're buying, they know what you're buying, they know the volume you're buying, they know the frequency that you're buying it at. So they know who Trader Joe is, who's buying a pallet of milk at a time. As soon as that stock reaches two, three weeks to expiry, SAP will bomb off an automated email or WhatsApp uh, or, or a text message to Trader Joe, not to the housewife, to say, we got stock, we prepared to discount the stock by 15% or 20% if you come collect it now. They can then close the loop because when Trader Joe does come in and buy, they can see, oh, he came in and he bought a pallet of milk. Mm. What they then do is they then go to, to back to Clover, okay, macro, Hey, you know, it would have cost you 100%. It's not costing you 20%. Give me 20% on the money back. So they're incentivizing the suppliers to give them a little bit extra cash to run this without making a loss. There is zero creative in this process, right? It's automated. By the time you think about in the past, it would be, oh, we have stock expiring. Let's get our agency to too creative. Let's place it in a broadsheet in the local Caxton papers. Let's hope someone sees it. Let's hope we sell this. Like weeks can go past. Mm. This can be done automatically all the time without anyone touching it. No creative agency. We need a digital agency. And to some point, we need an agency that understands email and text. That's all we really need. So all of a sudden, that entire agency piece is chopped out. There's a real return. We know that if you spend X on this, we can drive X amount of traffic to pick up stock. And that's just an example of expiring stock. We can also just do it for promotional stuff, yeah. you know, whatever that looks like. So I think that that the the SAPs and the RBMs of the world who are buying agencies are absolutely going to stand on digital agencies and definitely creative. I think the guys that think that they have a chance of taking a product shot, product and price sticking in a broadsheet, those are numbered, 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 numbered. So I think that's incredibly, incredibly important as, as a potential massive threat. And if you think about where the money from advertising comes from, I mean, Procter & Gamble, P&G, biggest spend of advertising in the world, right? Who are their clients? Their clients are macro. Mm. So as soon as they wake up and go, hang on, we don't need promotions like this anymore. And we don't need, we don't need a WPP agency to, to produce this kind of content. We can just give it to the ERP guys and they will actually drive volumes and we'll pay them rather. Think about the impact that has on, on creative agencies. Massive. So I think that that the FMCG, FMCG space is, like, is going to be some massive, massive pressure and then, of course, FMCG is moving online, and that's a whole different discussion in terms of targeting ads and moving stuff. Um, I mean, for me... Does that not become an exercise in, in finding creatives or agencies that understand that? And how do you message? Because then kind of the nuance of the writing and the, the strategy of when the email should go... And Possibly. Is the follow, you know, so it stops being about like the big idea and the big creative, and it becomes more about like what is the emotional state of the, the end user and when is well, the right time and the right so, message so, to hit So them yes and no, because you've got to bear in mind that in that example, in the past, there would be a Sunlight Liquid bottle, $23.99. Product pack, price, 
And that was enough to get you into the store to buy it. Hmm. There wasn't any creative. There was no thinking. There was no storytelling. It was just product and price. If that worked in terms of the human psyche, then why wouldn't that work on a text message? Again, no like soft touch. It's like, hey, sunlight, $23.99, buy pallet, $22.99, offer deals, offer ends Friday. And if you're a trader and you're only all about price, that's enough. So to some market, I think it would work. To other markets, you may need to be a bit more creative in terms of how you do it. Um, but I, I do think that in terms of certain products, it may work very quickly just to have that uh, automated, like completely automated, programmatic. You don't need, you don't need the human touch. Um, but having said that, macro is still going to attract clients. Yes. They're still going to bring guys into the business experience, new product. So there's other things which they still require. Um, and But let's just talk about advertising. And this is actually a two, two-part piece. So I'm going to use PNG as the example, right? So PNG produce a whole bunch of stuff we don't like shopping for. So you don't like standing, standing in a pick and pay buying white soaps and green soaps and dog foods and hand washers and shit that we actually don't really care about. We just need toothpaste. Yeah. Okay. Now you got to bear in mind they've built brands over hundreds of years, hundreds. Like there's some massively strong brands. Along comes Amazon who are coming, right? They're coming, they're, they're recruiting in Cape Town now. It's imminent of them at some point launching in this country. Amazon case study in South America, land in, in, a, in, a, in a brick country and go, dear PNG, you're selling, I'll give you a real example. Dear Unilever, you're selling sunlight liquid. You're selling sunlight liquid to pick and pay at 10 bucks. The cost of dealing with pick and pay is substantial because there's all the rebates and 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 and. Pick and pay is selling it at 15 bucks. We want you to give it to us at eight bucks and we're going to sell it at 10. And Unilever, PNG, here it is, go, we can't do that. Pick and pay is our biggest client. And Amazon go, cool, we'll sell your stuff at 15 bucks online, but we're also going to bring in a house brand at $10.99, or we're going to bring in your opposition at $10.99. Now, what they've realized is that when we shop, we shop click, and the future of shopping is actually voice, Alexa, Echo, Google Home, one of those things. And what they've realized is that when you go, dear Alexa, please send me Unilever Sunlight Liquid, they're going to go, Dear Spilly, we have Unilever Sunlight, whatever the brand is, at 15 bucks. We also have a house brand at 10 bucks. Which would you like? And I'm, I might go, no, 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 I'm, I'm loyal, I'm Sunlight. I've been served too many TV ads not to buy anything else. Please send me Sunlight. What they're then going to do, is they're going to send me the Sunlight. They're also going to send me the Amazon house brand and they're going to send me a second box. And if I don't want the Amazon house brand, I can put it into the second box and Amazon will pick it up from me, crediting my account free of charge. What are the chances of me logistically waiting around and organizing the second box? No chance. They are putting their brand in my house. Okay. When I don't return it, Amazon algorithm goes, oh, Spilly kept our house brand. The next time I ask for, can I get some sunlight? They're going to go, we see you kept the Amazon house brand. Can we send that to you instead? And I'm going to go, yeah, sure, why not? End of sunlight, right? Yeah. No more brand. Point being, sunlight, you spend a shitload of money on advertising. So they're probably going to spend more initially to try and keep their market going. But when Amazon put brand, FMCG brand, toilet papers, whatever that is, in my house at a cheaper price without having to stand in the pick and pay queue, I'm never buying those brands again. Yeah. So brand loyalty 
gone. I'm not talking about luxury goods. Luxury goods will keep, will keep buying, but at the bottom end, gone. So understand, if Amazon is going to kill PNG and Unilever and kill off their brands, they're going to kill advertisers that were living on well, they're that. probably just going to take all that money that they're spending on advertising and spend it to cutting their margin and, or they're and going to passing spend it, it back to Amazon. Or they're going to spend it on Amazon. Okay? Yeah. Sell it 15 bucks, we'll give you five bucks rebate, whatever yeah. that is. So the money's going to flow somewhere else. But the point being is that if you think about all those beautiful ads of it washes a thousand plates, you know, like you can, I'm using sunlight as the example, no longer relevant. Yeah. Like I just need green soap in my house and white toilet paper to wipe my ass. I don't really care which brand it is. As long as it's decent and it's cheaper, I'm not complaining. And it's convenient. Yeah. And don't ask me to answer a survey. A survey, <laughs> yeah. Because they know what I'm buying, right? Yeah. And, and, and then the next step on that would obviously be, you know, by example, if I'm buying 48 rolls of toilet paper a month, um, why do I need to actually Imodium. order that? They can ship you some just, 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 just send it, right? Because yeah. I can get to a point where they can track my frequency. Like, it's not even shopping by voice. It's just repeat last month's order ad infinitum. Hmm. And I'm happy to give my dog food and, and like, I have to think about that again, just debit my credit card. Um, and I think that will be the end of some very, very powerful brands. I think that there's going to be lots of pain in that space. The result being that brand building in that space is probably going to be a waste of time. Uh, um, but I suppose that's a, an interesting segue into this idea, you know, because we've talked about kind of creative becoming commoditized. We're talking about kind of data eating into all these sort of things. I think the last last kind of bastion in this world now is, is almost the idea of the experience yeah. and and creating something bigger than just a, a product. Um, and I know you've recently launched a, your own brand called uh, Brap. Is this where I can punt? This is when you can punt okay. Brap. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm interested to know kind of why you've almost taken your service, you know, like the, the, you, you're a, a coach and you, you almost now combining that with your passion and turning it into to something else. Can you talk a little bit about that? So early on, and you can't steal my quote without, without crediting me, okay? I talked about commodity, uh, creative is a commodity. Yeah. And what did I say? Shake a tree and a designer falls out, right? But the reality is that out of those designers, there's good designers and bad designers. You understand that. Not everyone understands that. But I mean, coaching has become quite a large industry in its own and shake a tree and a coach will fall out. I mean, I literally wrote that in a Facebook post last week where someone was like, I'm looking for a business coach. And there were like 60 responses of people tagging people. That wasn't a thing a couple of years ago. So the, the barriers to entry to be a designer are actually quite low. The barriers to be a coach can be quite low. Even lower. Even lower, yeah. I mean, just any idiot can be a coach. But the reality <laughs> is that people talk about, you know, I'm a life coach. And people, I'm a life coach on the side. Like people just do these things just because they can. Um, so what's become apparent to me was, was two things, that advertising coaching, very difficult. If you think about, if you go look at other coaches online, what you're looking for is the Instagram feed is basically a whole bunch of motivational quotes, which I absolutely hate, or it's the, the headshot with the quote. Like, so it's quite difficult to, to talk about what you do and what that feels like to be coached. Um, again, very competitive space. So I've managed to take two of my passions. I love coaching and loving business. That's one passion. And I love motorcycles. And um, weirdly enough, stumbled across the fact that a lot of entrepreneurs own motorcycles um, as, a, as a, you know, the weekend get around, whatever that is, um, and have coaches, but have coaches that are more corporate and less exciting. So all I've really done is I've taken traditional coaching methodologies and, and rolled it into a beautiful experience of 
coffee and breakfast and a beautiful ride out to the country and, and, a, and a beautifully presented coaching program and seems to be very sticky. The point being is it's all around the other stuff. I could absolutely do that coaching program in a boardroom for anyone and it would be as valuable from a coaching perspective. Mm. But it's the, the experience and the uniqueness of how I wrap this all up and package it that seems to be sort of the, the niche. And it's absolutely a double niche. In fact, like you think about coaching, entrepreneurs who happen to own motorbikes, it's a very, very, very niche of a niche. But, but I believe in mass niches. Um, and, I, and I think that globally it's a mass niche. There's, if you look at how many bikes are being sold locally versus internationally and how many of those are going to senior people in businesses and business owners, I think it's a big enough niche for me to play in. And I can own it. I can produce beautiful content around it. Um, and I need to make sure that we talked about the, the, the novelty doesn't wear off. And there's got to be a need at the end as well. So I'm trying to blend that novelty and need um, and trying to grow a bit of a global movement. And um, you put me onto a couple of podcasts around growing movements and it's, it's been very beneficial. And you've got to realize that through these things, there are periods where you have a party and no one shows up. It, it happens. Yeah. Um, but you just, you know, grit your teeth and carry on going. So I do think that in, in terms of, of double niching, wherever possible, whatever your business is, hugely valuable. You can always grow out of that, but difficult to find those. Um, so and I think you can have a brap in like an Uber one day where we all just get in Ubers together and Uber out to the countryside. Well, I, mean, I mean, we've really had conversations around people saying, we love the idea. Can you do it for cars? Can you do it for golfers? Can you do it for mountain bikers? Like I can do it for all those people. I'm just not those people, right? Yeah. Like I don't mountain bike and drive a car. But in theory, the experience around that could be created. So there's definitely a way of rolling it out eventually. Um, but I, what's been incredible to me is that uh, we, we had one on, on Friday in Cape Town. It was the first Friday one. And in the room, I knew two people, like physically knew them, and knew of one or two people. And the rest of them were Facebook and Instagram yeah. and a little bit of referral. Um, and that cost me, on average, about 500 bucks a month to run my, my social media media. So the barriers to entry for a small business are actually very, very low if you know what you're doing and how smart your strategy is. Um, and I do think that that people are fascinated that they think that the only way to reach people is through spend. Um, I think that the conversation piece and that experience and, and the real turnaround time of conversation and not the, the bot comment, but the actual comment relevant to that photo and, and mm. engaging with someone, hugely valuable. And that's the human voice. But I also think you, you've done a couple of things really smart in the, the packaging of this. Like you've exactly like you said, you found something that people are already passionate about mm -hmm. and you've combined that with your skills. So now... It's almost just finding people who have more of that passion. And generally, if you are, have a passion for a certain thing, you know other people who have a passion for the same kind of thing. So you've got that sort of like network effects going. And then you, you document it very well. So you take a lot of good photos mm. of the experience and you share those. And then obviously people like to see photos of themselves driving motorcycles. Yeah. So then they comment on it and share it well, more, which creates that. It's, a, it's amazing thing. The Facebook profile and the WhatsApp profile Within days of me sending out that link to all the photos when I get them, that's their profile. Um, and I had a thought around, what do I watermark it with my brand? And, and actually I realized, no, I want it to be, I want it to be theirs. They must own it. It's not a market. It's obviously marketing, but it's not, I don't want it to be a marketing tool where their guys are having to have to have that conversation. Um, so I'm touching value across multiple things. It's a day out the office to think about their business. It's the actual education piece. It's the group sharing and accountability. Um, I know that you're a part of EO. It's basically EO for motorcyclists, right? 
Um, it's the great breakfast, and we try get, we try have a great event around the breakfast. Um, it's good coffee. It's good conversation. It's the photos. It's the follow up, um, and you're building a network. And the guys yeah, building network a bit of a community of it's of a community. People. And the weird thing is, is that what I've realized is that I'm tapping into a existing community. So like I'm not I'm building a, a community, but the motorcyclists, there's these these motorcycle clubs all over the world. They're a very very close community. Um, and then there's always the opportunity to to sponsor and brand it, which I'm trying to not do for a while. I think it will come with time. But that would obviously be a bonus on top as well to figure out how to get a, a motorcycle brand or a hotel chain or a WeWork or someone to figure out how to sponsor it to have the events at their space. Yeah, uh, I think help. it's also interesting because you, you've come from a very genuine space and you've come from something that's obviously very genuine to you. And I think people realize that. So I think you've already identified that risk of like a brand can't just step into that space. Mm. So if they do step into that space, they're going to have to do it in a in a considered way yeah, very polite. because people's bullshit filters are like yeah. at max level nowadays. Mm. So if you come in in a disingenuous way, that people are just going to disengage. Yeah. So and I think if I, I'm using coming back to motorcycles as a, as, a, as a an industry is that if you look at what BMW are doing globally, is that BMW have two very clear clients on their motorbike. They have the GS, which is the off-road, sort of like uh, enduro kind of rider, yeah. not my cup of tea, a very particular kind of bike, very particular kind of audience. They then have the Cafe Racer piece, very separate. They haven't managed to figure out how to get guys onto the Cafe Racers at anywhere near the pace to get the off-road guys. And it's a good bike. It's a pretty bike. It's a quality product. So what they've now started doing is, as an example, is that there's a company in Cape Town called um, House of Machines. It's a coffee shop smashed over on toast breakfast kind of place. It's a bar, and then they have live music at night. It's got bikes and bike paraphernalia right through the place. And subtly, BMW are sponsoring that. I'm not entirely sure what the agreement is, but they're rolling these things out all over the world to try and get that kind of community to touch their product mm. in a very authentic way. You don't see a BMW logo anywhere, but they're obviously part of sponsoring the community and keeping the community alive around the cafe racer culture. So they're doing it in a very subtle way, and obviously there is a push to, to get guys onto BMW. But isn't this also the evolution of that kind of marketing? On the one end, the digital where we started is, is becoming super, super like transactional focused. Yep. And this is them on the other end of the spectrum. It's not marketing. They're not branding it. They're not selling to you. Mm. They're just coming into your space and they're trying to add a little bit of value to your life. And if, hey, if you do want to have a conversation about buying a bike, we're here. Yep. And we're ready. And as soon as you want, mm. if you want to test drive it, we're open. But we're not going to push you kind and, of and, at and, all. And, and the weird thing for me is that like, I'm not a BMW guy per se, but the reality is that I respect them for doing this. And when I, when I found out, I was like, oh, oh, it's their money. That's, oh, that's really cool of them. Yeah. And now I've got a newfound respect because they haven't forced it on me. They've actually given me something I want, which is craft beer, coffee, and smashed avocados. It's like what I want. Yeah. And it's just a much better way to sell their product to me. So I I'm, I'm, I'm look at them going, oh, they're a brand that kind of does get Get yes. me. So you're much more likely to now do a test drive of Absolutely. that cafe racer. Absolutely. And because you've got right. that bad service from those other guys, yeah. you might actually end up Absolutely. buying BMW yeah. with all the money you've made on Brap. So this is a nicely wrapped <laughs> up thing. Thank you very much. Um, I think just to close us out today, you know, you're in a unique position, you know, because a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are, are in the kind of communications department or are building brands and they're, they're using agencies like Nicework to do their, their sort of work. What are the, the kind of 
frustrations that agencies have with clients to kind of, and, and are there tips that you can give to clients in order to get better work, easier work, faster work, mm. clearer work out of their, their agencies? Well, I think the big thing is that I'm, I'm personally comfortable with the idea of large brand dealing with multiple smaller niche agencies. In the same way you walk into hospital, you don't expect one doctor to do everything for you. Second thing is, when you do walk in hospital and you need an operation, you absolutely trust the doctor to know what he's doing. Mm. So in the same way is that when you engage with the communications business or a communication consultancy, like they are the experts. They, are, they do have a, a much broader view of what's going on globally than you do in your business. You, you've got probably tunnel vision and blinkers on. So trusting them firstly with their, with like when they give you advice, take it on board. I'm not saying always use it. Um, and again, there's no right and wrong here because some clients do have mature marketers within their business. But more often than not, they, they think they know what's right for their business. They think they know what, what to do. So they just demand and you just become a, a machine that has to produce their work for them. And that's not using them efficiently, number one. Um, I also think that, that the, the, one of the biggest frustrations is, is clarity of brief. Just how do you give your agency a clear brief? Um, and then the agency in turn needs to make sure that they bring that brief internally, interrogate it correctly, and allow the, the brand again to um, have a look at your interrogated brief going, yes, you've got this right. This is what I do expect from you. Now start the work. Um, a luxury a lot of people don't have because often it's like lastminute.com, so just do the work. And then we have a thousand reverts on the other end, right? Um, so I do think that the way they communicate is really important. I think that there is a... Um, a breakdown in terms of the traditional Ogilvy from the 60s, 70s, and 80s account management function. That you know, weekly status meeting with 50 guys in the room. Um, I think that is unneeded in today's time. I think that that with all the levels of communication and the tools that we have, the physical meeting space doesn't need to exist. We have so many amazing tools that we can share with clients now that talk about where we are on each project and each piece. Um, so the demand of client on agency being in the room all the time I think is a little bit unnecessary in today's times I'm not saying that agency doesn't want to be in front of client because mm. that's obviously where there's opportunity to pick up more work but I just don't think that the the overkill of, of status and account management meetings I think is just I think you can also costing. get more efficiency out of your spend with your agency then because you're not well, wasting 100 Abs hours a month yeah. of people sitting in Absolutely. rooms that they don't need to sit so in so I think that that's that's possibly an, another piece um, I think that in terms of, of creative being commodity is the thought leadership piece out of a, out of a, out of your agency. So how they help you structure your communication and your brand and, and all those, you know, client experiences along there is what is actually important. Um, and potentially then outsource the creative somewhere else. So don't get hung up on, on one agency doing both necessarily. I think that if you can spend your money with the smart people who actually know what they're doing, um, and then you need to shoot a video or design a billboard, just go get that done outside. That's not, not the end of the world. So don't get hung up that it all has to be one, one business that you're dealing with. But ensure that the consultancy you're dealing with, if they are a consultancy or a brand consultancy, actually know what they're doing and can help you with your problem. And you've got to include them at every stage of your entire business. Because what you'll find is that they come in with really good advice, but they don't have the full picture. So, and you're not giving them the opportunity to see the full picture. So therefore, they're frustrated because they believe what their, what their solution is, is correct, 
when it may not be, but you haven't allowed them to see your full business strategy for argument's sake. So bring them close, let them experience the entire business with you and let them make informed decisions and then trust them. Yeah, I think, I mean, you've raised such a good point there. Like how many times you're expecting your your brand team or your communications team to kind of sell your your proposition, but you haven't given them line of sight of your strategy. And yeah. like, what is it? Hmm. Like, are you growing? Are you maintaining? Are you innovating? Are you like, what is your drive? Because obviously then you need to align that communication yeah, absolutely. sort of together. Yeah, and then, you know, and as I say, with, they're given a limited amount of, of scope of view. And with that, they do have the right solution, but it's not the right solution for the whole business. So yeah, I think that you, you've got to sort of bring them in at every stage. Um, and, and weird enough is that even when it gets to your C-suite, you know, like your, your this big, you know, the weekend away strategy sessions, bring your agencies in that because you'd be surprised how innovative they, their thinking is around some business solution stuff. It's not always they're the end of the, the, you know, the tail end, let's give them the, the cute thing to do at the end. If you bring them in early enough, they can absolutely help frame how you're going to do the work you're going to do. So again, one of the big trends I'm seeing is obviously the fact that consultancies are buying agencies, creative agencies, creative thinkers. I mean, we talked about before this podcast started, we talked briefly around how Droga 5 have just been acquired by Accenture. It's one of millions. It's one of the bigger ones made, made headlines. But why is a very, very you know spreadsheety, numbers-heavy MBA kind of business buying a very creative business? Because they understand that there's more than just the pretty picture at the end. Mm. There's other value there. So they will bring them in. It's like the way of thinking and the approach to it is Absolutely. brings a different element. Yeah. And I think the big thing is that, is that strategically businesses look at, okay, we need to hit these numbers and these margins, da, 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 da. But the agency can come in and go, well, how does your client feel about that? How are you going to communicate that? Like, what are you actually doing on the ground to make sure we do, you know, retain clients, improve clients, get referrals, whatever that is? Yeah. Um, I don't think that's always thought about at that level. It's always after the fact. So I do think that the, the the communication consultancies out there are which have spawned out of uh, creative agencies are like one of the next big sort of trends that large brands would hopefully start you know engaging with more effectively. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Brent. I really Thanks, appreciate Ross. it. Thanks Sorry, Spilly, me. I'm not your mom or your angry yeah. wife. Thank you, Spilly. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Thanks, Ross. <laughs> Cheers, man. Awesome. We'll catch you in the next one. Cool. Thank you for listening. We believe sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who would benefit from useful insights to stay relevant in the world of creativity, brand innovation, technology, and interacting in this new world, please share this podcast with them. On top of that, we welcome feedback, good or bad. So if you've got some, please reach out to us. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork, a branding and service design company in Johannesburg, South Africa. If you would like to chat about the challenges you're facing, reach out at www.nicework.co.za. We release an episode every week, so please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're really old school, hit us up and we'll make you a mixtape.